MSW Media. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Jason Aldean, and you're listening to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. Well, pour yourself a glass, sit for a spill. It's time to have some fun. Let's do a little thinking, some picking and a drinking. This is what we're drinking with Dan Dunn. Oh, yeah. <laughs> red, red wine. Go to my Forget that I still need a soul. This month, April 2022, marks the six-year anniversary of the release of my book, American Wino, A Tale of Reds, Whites, and One Man's Blues. It's a book I'm very proud of. Uh, it did pretty well risk of jinxing it. It's currently in development as a feature film project. I'm going to keep you posted on that. You can bet on that. Fingers crossed that that project comes to fruition. I'd say I'm hopeful it's going to happen, but a wise man once told me not to hope for anything out here. Hope kills in Hollywood. You just got to do your best, work your ass off, play every angle, and let the chips fall where they may, folks. So that's what I'm doing on the film front. The book, American Wino, it got it got some good reviews. Critic from Parade Magazine wrote, Dunn's raw, rich, comedic style in American Wino is lost in today's memoirs. Everybody else is so serious. Dunn keeps you laughing from page to page with the occasional saucy tale of self-deprecation woven into wine terroir and grape knowledge. That was Parade magazine. Everybody reads that. A guy named Javier Cabral at Vice said, Dan Dunn has found a way of one-upping your wildest dreams. While many of us squares only daydream about ditching work to take a carefree road trip across America, Dunn did just that. And finally, Larry Olmsted at Forbes magazine said, but this is only partly a book about wine. It is a wine-soaked road trip memoir painting Dunn's battle with personal demons on an educational wine canvas. These include the death of his brother, death of his dog, the unwanted end of the most serious relationship of his lifetime, the loss of true love, culmination of decades of family dysfunction and insecurity. This is a very personal book about life, loss, and personal transformation, juxtaposed with a very significant wine plot. Well, thank you, Larry Olmsted. I think you kind of nailed it. So, yeah, I guess that brings me to how the book came about. As, As Larry alluded to in his review, in the summer of 2010, my brother Brian drowned off the coast of Venice, California, just a Frisbee's toss away from my home. 
And by this point in my life, I'd, I'd lived with an alcoholic amputee father, used to take me to bars when I was a little kid and use me as a prop to pick up women. I had a bipolar mother who was prone to psychotic episodes, and I lost the only semi-stable adult of the bunch, my stepfather, who uh, died in a fire. He's a firefighter in Philly. Uh, so I guess I would say if anyone was equipped to deal with my brother's dead body getting pulled out of the Pacific Ocean, should have been me. Ah, uh, but that little middle finger in the eye from the universe dismantled me like nothing I'd uh, experienced before, really. But um, in the midst of this tragedy, something miraculous occurred. I uh, was on a plane ride back from Pennsylvania for my brother Brian's funeral, and I found myself seated next to a beautiful young woman. Now, obviously, I realized it'd be unseemly to flirt with someone while mourning a departed family member, no matter how much my dead brother Brian would have wanted me to. So for most of that flight, we just sat silently beside one another, I was earbudded into a playlist of the most woebegone music ever recorded, and she was reading Under the Tuscan Sun. Now, it wasn't until the final descent into Los Angeles that Jessica, that was her name, Jessica, tapped me on the shoulder and said the words that would alter the course of my life forever. She said, the flight attendant wants you to turn off the iPod. Love me, come forth and speak to me. Raise me up and don't let me fall. Now, I'm on my 17th listen through YouTube's Plaintiff Blues Love Rescue Me, and I saw this for what it clearly was. It was a sign that fate had intervened. So Jess and I struck up a conversation and over the next few weeks formed a friendship and that blossomed into romance. Now, from the very first kiss, there wasn't a doubt in my mind that I'd met the woman I was destined to marry. At my absolute lowest point, love had indeed come to rescue me, and I was convinced it'd been delivered by my dead brother, who's now my spectral wingman, I guess. Jessica was to be my salvation, my reason to believe again. Simply put, I guess she was the one. And four years later, she was the one who walked out of my life for good claiming she needed to go find herself or something like that. The first few weeks after Jess left were brutal. I holed up in my apartment with the curtains drawn, blasting love, rescue me over and over again in the hope that it would somehow summon her to tell me that I needed to shut down all electronic devices for landing and that somehow, impossibly, Brian wasn't actually dead. The only thing I heard, though, was my irate neighbor pounding on the walls in the middle of the night, imploring me to turn the fucking music down and suggesting I attempt several unnatural sex acts. And now the fact that I found this comforting is a testament to my desperate state at the time. So after an experience like this, many have been known to have a drink or two. I'm a professional booze pundit, however, and a drink or two wasn't going to cut it for me. I needed something monumental, something serious. And so it was that I, Dan Dunn, celebrated booze writer and noted good time Charlie, took the first step, admitting that I needed help and that I was powerless over alcohol, specifically wine, more specifically my ability to understand the damn stuff. I'd been to the celebrated winemaking regions of France and California, and I figured out how to fake my way to a tasting using undefinable modifiers or faux erudite oppositions. 
When it came to really throw down with the experts, though, I was lost. And it bugged me that you never heard about whether the stuff from Mississippi was any good. So with little more than a duffel bag full of clothes, an iPod full of the pogues, and a head full of unresolved issues, I decided to hit the road. My primary objective, beyond not being arrested or killed, was to learn everything. Everything worthwhile there is to know about how wine is made, sold, and consumed in these United States. To that end, I was determined to log as many miles as necessary on an unophilic odyssey across, around, and through this great nation. On the way, I would sample vintages from Sonoma to St. Petersburg and everywhere in between. Like Aeneas, Dorothy, and the Dumb and Dumber guys before me, my quest was fueled by an ultimate goal of epic proportions. In this case, I had to make it in one piece to one of the world's foremost Epicurean events, the 2015 Pebble Beach Food and Wine Festival. There, I, a man whose career had theretofore been most notable for as a writer for The Atlantic, succinctly put it in a review of my most recent book, Heavy Boozing, Light Drugging, and Perpetual Womanizing. I was scheduled to showcase my newfound expertise headlining a seminar as one of the world's leading authorities on American viticulture in front of not only some of the snootiest and most demanding of America's 1%, but a witheringly knowledgeable array of my industry friends, none of whom would hesitate to drum me from their core if I failed. To prepare to be judged by this epic confluence of expensive cardigans and walking encyclopedias, I had to transform myself from a heartbroken schlub who barely knew the difference between Merlot and Meritage into a confident connoisseur capable of wowing the surrounding population simply by swirling some fermented grape juice around in my mouth and pronouncing it troubling yet brilliant. If I somehow managed to pull it off, well, frankly, I still had to get my shit together. If I didn't pull it off would likely be the end of my charmed road of freeloading off the ample teats of the world's biggest liquor companies, which is to say, the end of my career as a booze journalist. Now, thankfully, that didn't happen. I managed to pull off a damn good seminar at Pebble Beach Food and Wine. At 15 minutes after the triumphant conclusion of Dan Dunn's American Wino at Pebble Beach, I was outside on the patio at Spanish Bay enjoying a stunning view, a glass of fine, bubbly, and the company of a delightful woman I met that weekend. Now, she remained on my mind for quite some time afterwards, but I hardly gave the seminar another thought until it came time to write the book. And though I may have had a Texas-side panic attack beforehand, the truth is, whatever happened there, even if it had gone horribly, mortifyingly off the rails, nothing could diminish the transformative experience I had getting there. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, Life is a journey, not a destination. But man... Destinations can sure come in handy when you're out of your mind with loss and don't know where to put your feelings. When it comes to these matters, though, I prefer a quote by a young fellow named Dan Dunn. Don't stop believing is a journey, not a Bon Jovi. Which is to say, nothing sticks to you when you're flying down the highway at 80 miles an hour listening to rock and roll.
April 22nd is Earth Day, and what better way to celebrate than with Batiste Rum, the first sustainable American craft rum. I like to call it a 3R rum because the makers of Batiste practice regenerative agriculture, use renewable energy, and make responsible choices. It's an eco-positive, solar-powered manufacturing process from start to finish. And Batiste Rum is made from 100% pure fresh cane juice, not molasses or sugar crystals. If you like your tequila 100% agave, then you'll love your rum 100% cane juice. And now, through April 22nd, Batiste Rum has a sweet, sweet offer for my eco-conscious listeners. Go to BatisteRum.com. That's B-A-T-I-S-T-E-R-H-U-M.com. Fill up your cart and enter code EARTH at checkout to get 22% off all orders. Celebrate Earth Day the right way with Batiste Rum. It's proof that great taste with true sustainability is not a goal for tomorrow, but a reality today. Okay, so of course I want you to buy the book. You can get it on Amazon or any other fine online booksellers. You might even be able to find it down at your local bookstore. To that end, I'm going to give you a little teaser. So let's pretend for the next couple minutes that we're at your favorite bookstore and your favorite author pretend that's me, is doing a reading just for you. Pull up a chair and get comfy. Okay, ready? Here we go. Now, this part of the book um, is, what is this? Chapter 13, Georgia and Louisiana. I'm just getting to Georgia. This is probably the, I'm two-thirds of the way into a trip that took about three and a half months at this point. So, uh, and also know that I'm, I've been carrying around my brother's ashes in a mason jar with me the entire trip, having conversations with him uh, that play out throughout the book. And uh, this kind of, well, I'll just read it. <laughs> How's that? Um, <clears throat> here we go. There's one of those roadside antique shops you find in places that are just far enough from a city to be considered the country. This one happened to be in northern Georgia, right at the beginning of the Appalachian foothills. It's a good little spot. And for reasons I'm not entirely clear on, I purchased a 30-pound bronze ram's head there. Of all the items I could have bought at White County's largest consignment store, why did I choose a giant metal effigy of a farm animal? I'm not sure. But I'm fairly confident it has something to do with my budding case of biopsychotric tia arbiosa. This is the technical term for what happens to your brain when you expose it for too long to a combination of fatigue, stress, the interminable flatness of the Great Plains, and a diet rich in donuts and Arby's. Then combine that with running over the occasional small house pet with your car. Hey, someone has to keep Arby's in business. Basically, when humans spend too much time behind the wheel, shit gets real weird. It's been documented. Sal Paradise didn't split for Mexico because it was prudent. Hell, he nearly died of dysentery down there, and it would have served him right. But see, all that time on the road drove him to it. That, and he was still pretty busted up over losing Terry and her kid. Plus, Dean Moriarty was this vortex of duende. He says, let's go to Mexico. You go to Mexico. You just do it. State of grace. Muskrat love. Excalibur, man. Originally, I named the ram's head Sauti Nakuchi, after the village I thought I bought it in. It was only after I got home that I discovered that the Nakuchi Village Antique Mall 
is actually located about three miles northwest of Salty Nacucci in a tiny town called Helen, Georgia. I couldn't very well change the ram's head's name to Helen, not unless I wanted him to get teased incessantly by all my other weird collectibles. Pancho Sanzibelt, who's a schlack dead frog from Mexico who has been made to appear like he's playing the congas, can be especially vicious. So after much deliberation, a.k.a. three glasses of wine, I decided to call him Michael Stipe. This, of course, is also the name of the lead singer of the greatest rock and roll band Georgia has ever produced. Plus, Pancho Sanzibelt is a huge Fables of the Reconstruction fan. R.E.M. is responsible for one of the three songs that never fail to make me think of Brian. According to R.E.M. bassist Mike Mills, Night Swimming is about the times in the early 1980s when the band and their friends used to go skinny dipping after the clubs would close in their hometown of Athens. As nostalgia triggers go, I realize it's a bit on the nose, but I found these things often are. For instance, every time I hear Leaving on a Jet Plane, I'm reminded of my Aunt Louise, the one who died on the Pan Am flight that terrorists blew up over Lockerbie, Scotland in 1988. Even now, I get sad just recalling my story about Aunt Louise and how she lost her imaginary life just so that I could get out of taking a difficult art history final. In those days, college, I was a virtual serial killer with a focus on the family. Hell, by sophomore year, I'd killed off at least four grandmothers, a cousin or two, an uncle in a Fort Meade helicopter accident, of course, poor Louise. I now realize that the only reason these tales were remotely credible was that the actual rubble and destruction in my life made them look in proportion. It's hard to tell when a kid's lying about his dead aunt when his real family is dropping like flies. But so the ram's head. It was a cold, sunny morning in November. I parked alongside the Chattahoochee River near Helen. I found a beautiful spot filled with lots of tall trees. My guess is they were pine trees, but I'm not sure. Dendrology is not my thing. The river was running strong, though. I listened to night swimming and surprisingly didn't cry. Not a single tear. It's usually automatic, so I listened to it again. Only this time I went and grabbed the mason jar with Brian's ashes out of Carl Vehicle's center console and brought it down so he could see it too. That did it. I wept like a Best Actress winner. Remembering that night September's coming soon Pining for the moon And what if there were two Side by side in orbit Around the fairest sun The bright tide ever drowned I had pulled off the road to shoot up on raw sentimentality, a risky proposition for neurotics like me. Reminiscing makes me uncomfortable. It's a gateway drug to self-loathing. On an intellectual level, I understand that grief is a perfectly normal and natural response to loss, in the same way that I recognize indictment and arrest are perfectly normal and natural responses to crime. Still, I find myself ashamed or uncertain about the way I process pain, in the same way no one in the right mind thinks the law enforcement system in the United States is a universally or even occasionally impartial instrument. And no amount of good cops you put on the street will change that. So I hope you'll pardon me for rolling my eyes when I pull myself over for driving while emotional. 
I look back at losing my brother, my girlfriend, or my dog and alternately scold myself for taking so long to get over them and revile myself for being some kind of zombie robot sociopath for not being more broken up about them, agonizing over whether or not I'm agonizing properly. It's a well-worn rabbit hole for me, given my ill-starred existence thus far. Half the time I worry that people are going to look at me and think I'm so full of shit my eyes have turned brown. This would be easier to disprove, by the way, if my eyes were not, in fact, brown. Half the time I want to punch those same people for even entertaining the possibility. Luckily, the one thing that doesn't scare me is actually being full of shit. I've known that I'm full of shit for a very long time. It's pretty much the one thing I'm comfortable with in life. I'm grateful for the fact that on occasions I've had uncontrollable crying jags when listening to the three songs that remind me of my dead brother, no one else has been around. Next to that river in North Georgia, I just let it go and bawled. When night swimming was over, I switched to another R.E.M. song. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. I played that twice, too. Sang along both times. I feel fine. I feel fine. I feel fine. After a while, I actually kind of did. That's great, it starts with an earthquake, birds and snakes and aeroplane, and Lenny Bruce is not a Then I opened the mason jar and dumped approximately two tablespoons of ashes into my hand and clenched it tight. It's the end of the world as we know it. I feel fine. I waited, holding on for just a minute. Be here for this. Don't rush. Now. I threw the ashes up high, ready to watch Brian atomize and float away on the breeze. The breeze, however, had other plans, and blew about half of Brian back into my hair and face. Oh, hey, buddy. You smell like an ashtray. The mason jar was about half full now, or half empty, or twice as big as it needed to be. Rest in peace, George Carlin. In your own words. People say that to you. You know, when you hear that a lot in a classroom... Or in a courtroom, they'll say to you, tell us, in your own words, do you have your own words? Hey, I'm using the ones everybody else has been using. Next time they tell you to say something in your own words, say, Nick Flut, Blarney, Quando, Flu. I had some people over recently, and the homemade drinks were a-flowing. All my guests were like, dude, these are the best friggin' cocktails I've ever had. You're an amazing mixologist. And I was like, damn straight I am. What my guests didn't know is I was cheating a little bit. Of course, I used top-shelf booze in the drinks, and you gotta do that. But I wasn't juicing the limes or pureeing the prickly pears or grinding up the jalapenos that made my cocktail so great. All I did was order Fresh Victor. Fresh Victor is a line of all-natural, clean-label cocktail mixers that brings the magic of master mixologists into your home with contemporary flavors designed to suit any palate. All of the ingredients are fair trade sourced. There's no artificial anything. The mixers are produced at a 100% solar-powered juicing plant with absolutely no waste. Fresh Victor is here to let you put down the citrus press and get back to the party. Right now, Fresh Victor is offering a juicy deal to my listeners. Simply go to FreshVictor.com and at checkout, enter promo code WWD20 to get 20% off your order. You want to throw a party? Throw a party and treat yourself and your guests to the very best mixers on the market. And that's Fresh Victor. All right, so one more little bit before we call it a show. 
the bit I just read you from the book was in Georgia, right? So we'll, we'll stick with that. I visited a host of vineyards in North Georgia and tasted some surprisingly delicious juice. I say surprisingly because I was in friggin' Georgia. Now, anyone who claims to have gone to Georgia expecting to find great locally produced wine is either lying or out of their mind or both. Combination, by the way, that has served Georgia politicians well for decades. I'm not talking about muscadine either. Although the supermarket shelves in Georgia are filthy with the stuff. According to folks I spoke with, wine is still a relatively new concept to a lot of Southerners, many of whom have only known vino that tastes like fermented Dr. Pepper. In a bad way. But like the Bible says, it's okay to kill people if they don't believe the exact same things as you. So I went ahead and kept my views on wine to myself during my visits to the supermarkets of Georgia. The way I see it, if a Jeff Foxworthy acolyte sipping autumn blush over ice on his front porch means there's one less Bud Light drinker in this world, I say muscadine winemakers are doing the world a service. Here's a quick lesson on muscadine. First off, what is it? Muscadine is a native North American grape grown mainly in the South, well adapted to warm and humid climates, thrives on summer heat, and needs far fewer chilling hours than better known varieties. How long has muscadine wine been around? Muscadine has been used for commercial wines and ports since the 16th century, so about 500 years too long. What does it taste like? Fermented Dr. Pepper, in a bad way. Come on now, try and keep up. Who drinks muscadine? Well, people for whom chiggers are a major hygiene concern. Also, anyone who has a homemade fur coat. What type of food goes well with muscadine wine? Whatever you run over with your pickup truck. Where can I purchase it? Walking distance of a Waffle House. And most likely at Waffle House. Has the muscadine grape been immortalized in song? <laughs> As a matter of fact, it has. Muscadine is used in the production of Ripple which is included in the lyrics of numerous tracks of the album Banned from the Planet by a band... I don't think I can say the name of this band. I, I guess I could say it with a beep. The name of the band is The Nasty... And then they got a great lyric in one of the songs. It says, by the way, where's my ripple? I seen this with the big-ass nipples. Now that is a good question, my friend. A good question indeed. All right, well, that's going to do it for this episode, the celebration of the six-year anniversary of the release of American Wino. As I said, the book is available. You can get on Amazon and get it. Hell, if you want to get it and write me a note at the imbiber on Twitter or Instagram, and we'll even work something out, you can send it to me and I'll sign it and send it back to you. How's that? I'll inscribe it any way you want. Just get it. Get get American Wino and read it before the movie happens. This way you can be like, ready for the movie, I guess. I don't really have anybody to thank but me since I wrote the fucking book. No, uh, I, I, you know, I want to thank everybody to help make that book happen. I want to thank you for uh, taking the time to listen to the show. I know you got options out there, tons of them. Everybody's got a podcast these days, but you're choosing to spend time with me. And trust me, it doesn't go unnoticed, okay? We'll be back next week with another exciting installment of the show. Bye. Bye.